And we're in a series entitled uh, on relationships, and we've been, we've been talking about relationships, and it's great to have, we have relationships everywhere we go. It's all about, everything in our life is about relationships, whether it's with our, our, our families, our children, our spouses, our parents, our coworkers, our neighbors, our classmates, and we've been looking at different one and last, different ones, and last week, Phil had, had started to really examine that marriage relationship and what that looks like, and today we're going to spend some time on the family. Uh, and, and, and when we talk about family, I mean, when you hear the word family, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Uh, for all of us, we have different concepts. For some, it's a very pleasant memory. For others of us, it's, it's not a very pleasant memory. Uh, for some, we've had some horrible experiences in our families. But we know that one thing is for sure, no matter what culture you come from, no matter what your background is, we all come from some type of family. Every which one of us. And there's really not that stereotypical family any longer that we, we picture in our minds. We, we talk about the word and we throw it around a lot, the term dysfunctional family. And, and we all know we, have, we come from different homes and different situations. And, and, and rarely is it the ideal that we have in our minds. But when we talk about family, we have to say, what is going on with the family today? I mean, if, if we examine our culture, we see that there's really a war with the family more than there ever has been before, seemingly. I mean, we, we have cultures that are, are just, I mean, not just cultures, but in our world today especially, we see that there are so many different things that seem to be attacking the family, whether that's spiritually, culturally, educationally. It seems like the very fabric of the family is unraveling before our eyes. As we see just the rise of uh, unbridled sexual immorality, unparalleled narcissism, Gender confusion, uninhibited, uninhibited hedonism, just this pursuit of pleasure, a moral education, and the seemingly irrepressible and insatiable desire to test the bounds of our humanity, pursuing whatever we want to do, and believing that as we go through these things, we're achieving our freedom. And that everyone's going to adjust to us. And, and we're, we're on the, the verge of a new humanity. I was even reading an article this morning uh, that was coming out of Great Britain. And it talks about gender fluidity among relationships. And basically what that's saying, it's trying to find a, a, a smooth way to describe how anybody wants to have uh, you know, some type of sexual relationship with whatever person they want to. Uh, boy, girl, doesn't matter anymore. And words that we never even could imagine just a generation ago, such as polyamory. And that means having many different relationships. And, and people saying, oh, marriage is an outdated institution. And throwing out all this new stuff. And people are saying, wow, there's a new level of tolerance and achievement in our society. But the reality is, is people think that they are trying to find this new freedom. What they're really doing is only validating their condemnation. And we see that God has, God himself has established the family. God created it. He made the male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. And out of that marriage relationship, that oneness, uh, comes children. And God created uh, parents, to, or this, this couple, to have children so that they might teach, him, teach them who God is, and they might show the world who God is. And we see that there is a war with the family today, that we are going back and arguing over just the very fabric of society, what it means to be a man and a woman. And if you can't get that right, then how are we going to understand what family is? And where are we going to find some type of moral compass? And now we're seeing things that we never could imagine before, just a few generations ago, just, in fact, one generation. 
I don't know about you, but I remember growing up in my family, and, and I remember some of the arguments that our family would get into. I mean, d- does your family ever argue about anything? Um, do you remember some of the arguments for those who are parents that you had with your parents growing up? I remember a big fight that went on in my house between my mother and my sister when she was 16. And, and it seems tame now when you think about all of the different things that are coming in our culture, but they were arguing, and it got to be a huge argument over whether my sister could get her ears pierced. And some of you ladies are like, yep, that was a big argument in our household. And that seems so tame now compared to what we're talking about in our culture. What people are going through and all of the different, the different uh, things that seem to be in temptations that are assaulting us on a daily basis, coming in through the internet, coming in through media, promoted and propagated by our culture, just infiltrating our educational systems and, and seemingly just being pushed uh, in this agenda of, of sexual dystopia or dysfunction. And so we're saying, how do, we, how do we make sense of all this? It can be overwhelming. It can be depressing. Because it seems like, again, our culture is unraveling all around us. And people are saying, what do we do? And we wring our hands and lift our hands up in the air saying, God, what do we do? What do we do? And many of us just kind of go along with the current of the culture. But God is calling us to anchor ourselves. And how do we anchor ourselves? Through the Word of God. That no matter what happens in our culture, no, no matter which way the wind blows, God's Word stands firm. And it will be proven true, and it has been proven true in every single culture, with every different tribe and tongue, every different people group, God's word has remained steadfast. And we know that every culture has its wind, the winds of culture blowing in one way or another, but God's word remains steadfast. And God calls us to not only survive, but thrive in the midst of this culture. And he's showing us how we can have thriving families. Now, I didn't say perfect families but thriving families. And we become thriving families when we put these principles from the Word of God into place. How we are to live as husbands and wives, how we are to be as parents, how we are to be as children, and where we look for the example that we are to follow. So whether you are married or not married, whether you have children or don't have children, whether you're in the midst of the trenches or maybe you've been out of the so-called parenting game for a while, this message is for each one of us because this equips us with principles that transcends generations that we can learn ourselves and teach those to those around us or, or put these principles into place that we might follow what God says, that we might grow in our joy in God and also that God's name might receive glory in and through us. So today, let's, let's really focus in to see how we can become the thriving families that God wants us to be as we delve within these passages. But before we go any further, let's ask God to bless our message time together. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence right now. Lord, a bit overwhelmed when we turn on the news, we see what's going on uh, in our culture all around us. Uh, We see the rise of immorality. We see this uh, people just identifying as whatever they want and uh, calling themselves Christians, but yet casting your word aside and not obeying you. And we see families that have just been racked by divorce or immorality or just selfishness or whatever it might be. And we, we see people that have been uh, children and, and spouses that are, that are going through such difficult times uh, because of the choices of a parent or a spouse. And uh, Lord, they are wondering what they are to do, how they are to live. Lord, call us back to yourself. Bring healing. Show us how we might be able to live in the midst of this sinful world. 
that your name might receive praise. So draw us near to yourself. Convict us and make your name famous. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to start off in Ephesians chapter 3. Now, I'm sorry in your notes I got that a little bit wrong there. It says Ephesians 4. It's actually Ephesians chapter 3. And the first thing that I hope to do as we really jump into this is I want to kind of provide a baseline, an example of why God created the family and how it is to be organized and structured. And it's going to be kind of the 30,000 foot view of everything. And then I want to get much more practical. So in the first passage, we're going to look at what the family is and how it came to be. I mean, we know it begins in the garden, but it actually uh, originates something even before the garden. Uh, But then I want to get into the everyday principles on what this looks like. So we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this passage, I just want to give uh, mainly focus on the first verse of this passage and then spend a lot more time in Ephesians chapter 6. But in Ephesians 3.14, we read this. For this reason, and this is Paul writing by the Spirit, I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So it's, it's fascinating. It says the, the fullness of God, the expression in, uh, uh, of being completely filled up, the, the full knowledge of who God is. Now, when we think about anything with a family, we have to know where does the family come from? Where does this idea of the family come from? So we see this idea of the fullness of God, understanding the being and the person of who God is. And, and we see that the family actually springs from God himself. Not just his idea, but from God himself. Look at, for example, verse 14. Again, this is more theological, so stay with me. But he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family... Every family in heaven and on earth is named. Meaning that family, this idea of family, springs from the very person of God. So for us to truly understand what the family is and how to be a thriving family, we have to examine the Godhead. God is one God, our God is one God, but he exists eternally in three persons. God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, but making one God without division. Uh, But each one has a different personality. The Father is not the Son, nor is the Father the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son. They are three distinct persons, but yet the three make one God. Now, when we understand how God exists in His being, His essence, we understand a few different things. First of all, that within the Godhead, there is a recognition of authority, of authority. So God originates and creates the family, the father, the wife, and the children that are the product, hopefully, and as he wills, of that union. And there is an authority within that family structure. God calls the husband to be the leader of the family. Now, the fall affects men and women differently. The fall affects men, we're just going to examine men for a moment, by either becoming completely dominant, where they try to beat or um, be dictators in their family, and that is wrong. 
And then the other side is where they wafe and waver and totally abdicate their responsibility as to be leaders of the home. But God is calling men to be the leaders of that family. Now, again, men and women are equal within Christ, but each has a different role. We see this biblically. But when we examine the Godhead, we do see that there is an authority even within the Godhead, that the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. There is an authority where God the Father sins. God the Father is active in our salvation in that He planned it, or He, pur- he purposed it. The Son of God purchased it, and the Spirit of God provides it. And brings it to fruition. So we see this idea of authority. And we see the idea of authority even within the family. That there is to be a way that the family does function. The kids aren't to run the house. That's not how it's supposed to be. That God has pr- provided this family unit. And we get this idea of authority within the Godhead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As Paul writes, When all things are subjected to him then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, referring to the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is at the end of time. So the Son submits to the Father. And we understand that the family originates from God himself. And that within the Godhead, there is this authority. So is then authority within the family. And we need to understand that if we're going to understand these principles that I'm going to list. Now, within this Godhead, though there is a recognition of authority, there is also an equality. There is an equality that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all equal. We have this tendency to focus on Jesus, and you see different groups within Christianity elevate Jesus higher or the Father higher or the Spirit higher. I've seen this in different divisions of Christianity. You see within like high church circles, the Father gets this really big press, and God the Son and God the Spirit don't seem to be focused on as much. And within more of a Baptistic church services, Jesus is it. The Father doesn't get a lot of attention, nor does the Spirit. Then we go into more of the charismatic circles, and the Spirit gets a lot of different press, while the Son and the Father don't. But we have to understand that God is true triune. And there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is an equality within, within them, but yet there is also difference uh, or a recognition of authority. So in the family, there is equality. The husband and the wife are equal in, in, in Christ, and each one has a divine responsibility and a different role within the family. We can see this, that the father helps establish the identity of a child while the mother helps promote the self-esteem of a child. And if either one of those is off balance, then that child will suffer because of it. And I've seen this too many times to name. When, when the, that's why you need to both a father and a mother. Now, we understand circumstantially, sometimes we've made choices in our life where that is not the ideal. And people have had to step into roles that they weren't otherwise suited for. And God helped bless that. But that's not the ideal. God has put it in place that there needs to be both father and mother. And there's also a difference in functionality. Now we talk about, I'm going to throw out a big word, ontological. What that means is, is in essence, there is a quality within the Godhead, but there is different functionality. Each one of the Godhead, members of the Godhead, persons of the Godhead, has a different function. As we saw before, the Father purposed our salvation. The Son purchased it with His life, death, and resurrection. 
and the Spirit provides it to it. God exists as triune. Now, now I've established that. I, again, that's a 30,000 view, uh, foot view because I want us to see that the family originates out of the, of the person of God. Therefore, it, it applies to us to look at that to see that there is a way that a family is equal in the sight of God, that there is a different role that the members of the family have, and there's also an equality and a submission and recognition of authority between parents and children. And once we understand that, these other admonitions that we see within Scripture becomes, become a lot more prevalent. So I've given you the theological ways. Now let's get into more of the practical. And I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 6. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord. Now, I know that this is a verse that's been thrown around my household uh, a few different times. It's probably a child's least favorite verse. But it is one that is uh, definitely needed, and it is a command. The word for obey is in the present active imperative. It's in the present tense, meaning it's to be run right now. Active means the ones that he is addressing, these children, are to be doing it, not someone else. And it is um, in the, so we have it present active, and it is a command. This is not optional. And we can see here then that God, because of this, he is speaking directly to children. He also speaks directly to the parents. But we can see that God cares a great deal about parenting. God cares a great deal about parenting and the roles of parenting. So we need to engage this admonition and understand that God cares a great deal about our parenting. So much so that when God speaks to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he gives them what is known as the great Shema. Now this great Shema is like a motto and a theme. It's also a theological statement that all Israelites were to know. Everyone that was a Jew understood this great Shema. And, and it's fascinating about it. He gives this great theological truth. Stay with me. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, I, f- I find this fascinating. Most people are at least aware of this. We're, we see this repeated in the book of Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? What's fascinating about me is after, fa- not about me, but about this passage, is that once you get this truth, that God gives this great truth, I find it fascinating that the thing that he goes directly into next is about teaching that to the next generation, that parents are to teach this to their children. He goes on, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. But he says, you shall teach them diligently. God is saying that I have, I, this is who I am, but your responsibility as a parent is to teach the next generation. I have given you this responsibility that you are to teach the faith to other people, to your children. And we have to understand that as parents, we have a profound effect on our children both positively and negatively. And I, and I see, though, that the one thing that parents struggle with 
is, is understanding that as the children grow older, our roles change. We have to understand the changing roles of a parent. As you are a parent, your role changes over time. Now, experts say that there are different stages of parenting, and no two experts agree. Some say that there are four stages of parenting. Others say five, while others say six. And they say that as, when a child is born, for example, between zero and two, your role is to be the caregiver for that child. You're not necessarily reciting theological truths to your zero to two-year-old. You might read them scripture, but the idea is, is they're not really retaining What's there? You're to provide for their basic needs. You're to take care of them. You're to clean them. You're to feed them. You're to help them sleep. These are the things that your responsibility when they're young. But as they age, your role changes. Now, understanding this role, we have to understand what the end goal is before we can really establish all of the stages. What is the end goal of your child? What does God want you to do for your child? Is it so that they'll be happy when they get older? I, I hear that a lot. You see that on TV shows all the time when parents are, are kind of crying and saying, I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. You know what? I want my kids to be happy, but I'd rather them be holy. And I, and I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I, I don't buy the argument that they'll be happy at the exclusion of holiness, that they can do whatever they want. That's not happiness. Matter of fact, that's not showing love to a child. That's actually showing that you, you hate them because you're saying that their happiness is greater than God's holiness. And you're making the child then an idol, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But if our goal is to see them become mature Christ followers, and we need to work backwards from that to understand our role in these different stages. Now, I don't have these on the... the uh, on the, on the screen here, but we have to understand our primary role when they're young are to be their caregivers. And then we become kind of their commanders. Where, and that's between the age of three and about, or, or go from two to five or three to six. We tell them where to go and what to do. And, and we, we want to place within them biblical moral principles and help them to develop biblical moral reasoning. That's what we're to do when they're younger. Now, as they age, we're to help. We, we go from a commander to a coach, where we try not to dictate so much their roles, but we want to help clarify them, help them to, to make the best moral decisions while allowing them the experience of consequences for actions for their choices while being there for them to help them through that. And that, go, that goes between the age of 6 and 10. And then the next stage is to that of counselor where we are there uh, for advice and we give direction to them, making sure that, um, that as they are there, we, we're there when they need us. We're also making sure that they are, we're giving them the tools that they need to live independently as adults. We need to prepare them for adulthood so that when they leave the house, they have the tools necessary to live. And this stage goes from the age of about 11 to 17. And the last and final stage is that of consultant, when they are to leave the house and become adults to set up their own households. We're to be there for them, helping them when they, when they, and, and be there when they need it. We give advice, but we know that ultimately the decisions that they make are theirs, and they have to live their, live their lives, hopefully by God's grace and mercy, to serve Him. And we see that this, our culture has really messed this up because we have allowed a perpetual adolescence to go on where now kids that are 30 years old are living still in the home. And if you're a 30-year-old here living in their home, I am sorry. But let me tell you something. Grow up. We, you need to grow up. 
I understand that the culture is hard. And I understand that you might be there because of some circumstances. And if you're there for a time, I understand that. But the idea is you don't stay there permanently, that you're to grow up and set up your own household, by the way. That's why we see that in the book of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says that you're to, you're to, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The idea is that they leave and grow up, that they set up their own household. And we see that in our culture today, that people are continually putting off marriage and the idea of just living together, and, and they're, ch- they're trying to change the way of it. And it's interesting, as I, I hear people throw out numbers, and they say, well, 40 is the new 30, and 50 is the new 40. And I'm like, you can say that all you want, but that doesn't change the basic biology. And let me tell you something. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, and I think we all understand this, but you, your body changes as you get older, does it not? My mother got married when this was in the 1960s, and she grew up as a farm girl, and it was pretty normal to get married at 18, 19 years of age. She got married at 18 years old. She had my, my brother at 19 years old, and then I came around when she was 30 years old. And my mother, I remember her telling me this. She goes, you know, there's a big difference in your body between the age of 19 and 30. Your body shifts. And, you know, it's interesting that the Scripture even says, blessed are those who have their children when they're young. You know why? Because you don't have any energy when you get older. You don't have any energy. There was a woman in Great Britain who had an in vitro fertilization when she was in her 60s and had, had uh, twins. And people were saying, oh, it's a great miracle of nature. See, we don't have to be beholden to our bodies. She had these twins, and people are celebrating it. And after three weeks, she goes, I'm too old for this. <laughs> and then you know what happened? She died right after that. And people were like, oh, who's going to take care of these boys now? See, there, there, we, we've looked at the culture to dictate what it means. We have to go back to see what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? And go back to these biblical principles to show what the Word of God has for us, to give us clarity. And we understand that we are to, get, we are to be married, we are to have children in that order, and understand that it doesn't always happen that way, that people have sinned, they have to deal with the consequences of it, and there's no one in this room that's innocent, by the way. And then we, we have to understand then that we are going to do the best that we can in the situation that we're in, following God and making our lives continue to follow Him and making the changes necessary and receiving the forgiveness that's there. But understanding that in our lives, that as we, we, these changing roles that we have, the choices that we make as parents, our choices have consequences that affect the generation that comes behind us. Our choices have consequences for good or for bad. Choices have consequences. We're not here to... Notice here in in Ephesians chapter 6, and my wife has repeated this to me ad nauseum, chapter, uh, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children. It's interesting, uh, the term that's also, that's used in many different translations is exasperate. My wife loves quoting that to me. Fathers, do not exasperate, provoke your children. The idea is, is that you're making choices that frustrate and push the buttons of your kids. And we, we have to understand that how the choices that we make will affect that, that next generation for good or for bad. Meaning that if you're pursuing God, your children will see that and hopefully they will pursue God. But if you choose to be selfish, that's going to affect your children. That if you're hypocritical, that your children will pick that up and live a life just like that. 
I was dealing with a couple uh, not too long ago, and the parent was mad and expressed anger. They said their child, the child won't ask for forgiveness for something wrong they've done. And I stopped and looked at them and said, have you asked for forgiveness ever in your relationship with that child? No. Then why do you expect this child then to ask for forgiveness from you if you have never given that example for them to follow and modeled it for them? See, you have chosen not to do these things, and now you're expecting your child to do something different. They're just repeating what they've seen you do. So we have to understand that our choices that we make have consequences. Now, parenting is a responsibility, and we need to embrace this responsibility that God has for us. That's why we understand children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Now, what is our responsibility as parents? I believe that we can see a great deal of our responsibility as parents. Now, some of these are listed. Some of these are, 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 um, uh, can be drawn from this. And, and some of these th- points that I'm about to give you are, are, I used to think were common sense. But the more that I've interacted with parents, they're not common sense. And here's what our responsibilities are as parents as they do pass through these different stages. First of all, parents, we are supposed to provide for their needs. Provide for their needs. Now, this doesn't just mean food, water, shelter, and clothing. I don't know where that comes from that would parents think that, hey, I provide them food, I provide them a house. It's, we're not just physical beings. We are physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual beings. We're to help provide those needs. I'm not saying that we, are becoming, we become God in their life and create a culture of uh, dependence upon us, but we're to provide for our children's needs. That's why, by the way, that word exasperate or provoke is a fascinating word in Greek. It literally means this, to rouse someone to anger, to provoke in a way that really pushes someone's buttons, really get to them in an up-close and personal way. It means that we are to become sensitive to their needs. See, when you're not sensitive to what they are going through, you just say a blanket rule that they're to follow, no questions asked, don't question me, and you're not reading who they are and understanding what is going on in their life, then you're really provoking them. They get angry because we're not considering who they are as individuals. We're just glossing over their feelings, and that really frustrates them as people. We need to be sensitive to their needs, to be students of our children. But our job is, is not only to provide for their needs, but to protect them, especially when they are young. To protect them, um, especially if they are incapable of defending themselves adequately or are too naive to know the consequences for what's at stake. This is a tricky stage for every parent. Nevertheless, we are to protect. And the question that we must ask is, how long do we protect? When do we allow them to choose things for themselves and allow them to fail at some things? See, this is what every parent must figure out, and it differs between parent to parent and from child to child. We're to protect them. I'm reminded of this story I heard once of this uh, uh, evangelist who came to the church that I was at in Chicago, and he was telling a story about his interaction. I believe it was with his daughter. And he had this policy that if, you wanted to, if, if a young man wanted to date his daughter, uh, the young man would approach the daughter, and the daughter then had to refer this young man to the father. And the father then would have to approve whether or not that she could go on this date. Now, I know this seems crazy to some people, but this is how uh, he set it up. He, was, he knew his job was to protect his daughter. And uh, a young man came to the daughter and said, I'd like to, ta- I'd like to take you out. 
And she's like, well, you have to talk to my dad first. So she goes to her, her dad and says, this, this guy is going to call you. And uh, he wants to take me out. And the dad goes, well, tell me, honey. Tell me about this boy. Well, he gets into trouble a little bit. And uh, he's a real fun guy. But um, he's, he's also known to get into a lot of trouble. And, and, uh, and he goes, well, is he following God? And she goes, well, no, he's not. But he's really cute. <laughs> and he's like, okay, that's all I needed to know. And so uh, this young man calls the dad. And he goes, Mr. Smith. I'd, and he goes, yes. He goes, well, I'd like, uh, uh, I'd like to take your daughter out. And he goes, well, um, you know, my, my daughter just told me a lot about you you, and I just want to tell you that uh, I can pretty much guarantee that you're not in her future. Thank you. And <laughs> hung up the phone, right? And, and so it was done there, and, and he didn't call again. Well, a few weeks later, uh, another young man uh, talks to the girl and, and asks her out and says, well, you have to talk to my dad. So uh, he calls the dad, and he says, Mr. Smith, I'd like to take out your daughter. And, and before, actually, before that, uh, the dad had asked a question of his daughter, tell me about this boy, and she goes, well, he's a great guy, and everybody loves him. He's a leader, and he, he seems to love God, and, and uh, he's, just, he's a great guy. And he's like, okay, that's all I needed to know. And, and then the young man calls and says, uh, Mr. Smith, I'd like to take out your daughter. And he goes, hey, uh, come over on Friday night. And uh, at 8 p.m., be here at 8 p.m. sharp. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll be there to pick her up at 8, 8, 8, 8 p.m. And, and so uh, the young man, I mean, he dresses up. He gets a haircut. He, he looks really good. He gets flowers. And he, he brings kind of the chocolate, kind of the stereotypical thing. And re- he, he made reservations at a restaurant that he thought she would like. And he showed up at the door ready to meet the dad. And, and uh, he said, uh, Mr. Smith, it's so nice to meet you. And I'm, I'm here to take out your daughter. And he goes, she's not here. Uh, the date's with me. <laughs> and he said, we're going to talk first. Um, and he goes, I want to get to know you. And I want to tell you about my daughter. And we laughed at that. But see, he understood that his, his, his job was to protect his daughter. Now, that might seem a little crazy to some people. And I, I know my own daughter's like, you would never do that, right? I'm like, yes, I will. <laughs> yes, I will. Um, but because my job is to protect my kids. And sometimes even from themselves. It's not that I don't want my children's best. I do. But I, I, I am the guardian to protect. And we are to protect. And that includes both the boys and the girls. We are there to protect and help uh, our children follow God. So we need to protect them. And not only that, but our job is to teach them. To teach them about who God is. Now notice this in the passage. That we are, the children are to obey uh, Obey their children in the Lord. But look down to verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That we are to teach our children what it means to be a follower of Christ. In the passage we just looked at in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you're to teach them as you get up in the morning. As you go to bed at night. This doesn't always mean sitting down at the, the table and opening the Bible together. It means talking about God in the everyday moments. Whether it's uh, getting, getting them to, ready for school in the morning if they're younger kids or if they're putting them to bed at night. It's those divine moments of conversation. Uh, when I, I, I like to pray with my kids before they go to sleep at night. And, and, and those are when some of the best questions come up. Or when we're driving in the car and going someplace, my kids come up with some great theological questions. And it's a great opportunity to just engage who, uh, and teach them about who God is. Our job is to teach them who God is. God takes that responsibility very seriously. And not only teach them, but we're also to train them. Train them. 
We're to teach them who God is and how they might follow them, but we're to train. And training involves dedicating oneself to a task through giving them skills and tools to do the job. And it often involves, involves excuse me, modeling. It's not just giving out of facts. It's showing them how to do it. As Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he was old. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Train them, to model it for them, what it means to be a pursuer of Christ. To give them the, the skills and the tools necessary to follow Jesus in the middle of this world. We're to help train them and model that for them. We're also responsible to make sure that we discipline them. Discipline them. Discipline can take many forms. Uh, when they're younger, it might mean spanking them, or it might mean a timeout, or it may mean taking away privileges from them. Each kid is slightly different in their personalities. Whatever form it takes, we must make sure that we do discipline our children so that they might know that there are consequences to actions. Because we, in this generation that's come up right now, they're calling it the most narcissistic generation that has ever been seen on the face of the earth. It's all about them. Everything's about them. And they've been raised to have great self-esteem, and that's what the experts said. And the culture just really involved themselves. We have to build them up. We can't say no to them. And it's made some very selfish children who think that they're the center of their own universe. But we see scripturally that that's not what we're, it's not about what, that's not what we're supposed to do. It's not about making them the center of the universe. It's about showing them that God is the center of the universe. That God is the person that they are to follow. We need to make sure that we discipline them. As we see in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline drives it far from them. And it means consequences for actions. That they understand that there can be painful consequences that come of that. And then they fear and know what they are to do or not to do. We're not only to discipline them, but we're also to affirm them. Now, this not mean, it doesn't mean self-esteem, but it means acknowledging that they are creatures made in the image of God It means attending to their emotional and spiritual needs. When they're hurt, we need to affirm that hurt rather than gloss over it. And whenever they do something good, we need to affirm that, that it's intrinsic within a child to have and look for this affirmation from the parent. Here's here's an example of it. Um, my children are ranged from the age of two and a half to 13. I'm not a perfect parent, okay? I'm in the middle of this just like you are, uh, or, or many of you are, so... Um, I, I am seeing these examples drawn out in my own daily life. But I see my children, when they do something that they uh, deem to be really great or they create something or draw a picture or do a funny act or stunt, what do they say to me? Daddy, look at this. Are you looking? Are you looking? Are you watching? Are you watching? Do you ever see that with kids? Are you watching? Are you watching? Why? Because the child wants my affirmation. And it's not, it's not just the act that they do, but it's an affirmation of their dignity. That they are, they are made in the image of God and what they do matters to me. When we don't affirm that, a child will look for that someplace else. We have to understand that, that God wants us to affirm them, what they're going through. See, I find when I counsel people and I, I see people that are really struggling with something and they share the hurt in their life, they're waiting for me to affirm that they are hurt. One of the most frustrating things, in, and I see it within spouses and I see it within children, is when we go through something painful and the person hears our pain and they just gloss over it like it meant nothing. And that, 
that exacerbates our pain all the more because now we are feeling like they have not understood us or validated our, what we feel, that it's real. And we get angry and frustrated. But God has shown us that we are to affirm and acknowledge these things. It's a basic aspect of human dignity. And I have seen parents manipulate or overlook that within children causing children great anguish. Ask any psychiatrist or psychologist what was the main factor that influenced their life negatively, and almost every single time the answer will go back to a parent. Almost every single time. Whether it's a father or a mother. I mean, think about that in your own life. How that affected you for good or for bad. Parenting is powerful. God has made it to be that way. That our parents influence us for good or for bad. Affirming their dignity means that we acknowledge them so that they have a sense of dignity as God's image bears and their experiences are real. Now this also means that we're not to uh, constantly criticize looking for ways to trap or guilt our children into doing what we want them to do or to be the people that we want them to be. Parents who are constantly criticizing, looking for ways to trap or guilt their children into doing what they want them to do, will find that after using this tactics over the years, will uh, really be to the detriment of their child and their development. I've seen this happen with parents who have made their children idols. So you can make parenting an idol. Parenting is a good thing, Okay. But you can make your parenting just like we can do anything and make it an idol. I'm not talking about a little object about down to worship, but a motivational idol, something that we value or place over God. And, and I've seen this happen. And see, what happens when you make your child an idol, then that will eat you alive. And when that child neglects you later, you will find you are completely broken because your identity was not in Christ, but in that child and their self-esteem and their happiness. David Foster Wallace, who is a writer, uh, gave a speech, a graduation or commencement speech in 2005. And it became known as This is Water. It became a rather famous speech. And though he was not a Christian, he understood the power of idolatry. And I want to show that this, we can make a, an idol of parenting, but I want, to, I want to share this quote with you. He says this. He goes, there is no such thing as true atheism because we all worship something. Every single one of us. We all worship something. Even an atheist worships something. It might be his own ideal, his own intellect, but he worships something. He says, the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you always will feel ugly. Ladies, have you ever had that experience? You ever seen that happen with people? They're always talking about beauty and they've, they've made it. They never feel beautiful enough because that's an idol. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And, you'll never ever, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect 
being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they're unconscious, their default settings. Now, what I want us to understand and draw the parallel here is that we can make our relationships idols, especially those of our children. I have a situation that I've had to deal with um, where the parent has made their children, this, this ch- uh, parent has made their, the children an idol in their life. I mean, it's all about the children. Everything's about the kids. Every conversation goes back to the kids. Everything. And when the child rejects that parent, as inevitably will do, that parent is crushed and, and wanting to know why. Because that, that parent started to, to manipulate, terrorize, criticize, because they wanted, they had no identity of their own. So they started living through that child. And when the child failed, the parent felt like they failed. And so they constantly kept looking to that child, that child, that child, that child. And their happiness was crushed because they had put that child and their parenting over God himself. And this can happen in any relationship. It can happen in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It can happen in a spouse. And we can make idols of anything. And we have to understand that we are not to make idols of these things. We have to understand and put that in this relationship in its place. Because our purpose is to help them follow God, not their own happiness. And that leads to, this leads to our responsibility to make sure that we are helping our children develop into the people that God wants them to be. Develop. We help them to understand their intrinsic value as God's children, while also helping them understand how to fight against their sinful nature and help them to develop skills to put to death their sinful natures and to navigate the water of, waters of adulthood as Christ's followers. And after that, we must make sure that we release them, that we release them. Our children are, need to be let go, to set free to leave the house and make their own decisions. Traditionally, this can be seen in marriage, as we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The idea is they are setting up then their own household. Now, uh, I, I need to go through these last points rather quickly as we're running out of time. Um, I've spoken to the parents a great deal, and I'm going to speak to the kids. I'm going to speak to the kids. Kids, your responsibility is to recognize the responsibility your parents have. They are responsible and accountable to God. Understand that. That what they tell you is normally, usually, out of a spirit of love because they care. They're not there to make your life miserable. Some parents are saying, no, that is my purpose in life. It's not to make their life miserable, but it's to recognize their responsibility to teach you and to train you. Secondly, you have to respect their position even if you may not respect them as, as people. You have to respect their position that they are your parent that they hold value in the sight of God for good or for ill. They are your parent. Respect their position. Thirdly, you must make sure that you are responding properly to them. Notice in our text, the child was to obey them. They were to treat them respectfully and be obedient to the counsel and instructions they received. This means you listen to your parents, honor them, and treat them in many ways uh, as you would God, knowing that you were to give an give an account for how you have treated and obeyed them. And lastly, realize there is a reward. Realize there is a reward. 
Notice in our text, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You're to teach them. But children, notice here, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. He's saying there's a promise there that if you obey your children, that you will be rewarded. Now, this passage was aimed and focused on the Israelites right before they were going into the promised land. He says that you may dwell long in the land, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Obviously, we're not in, we're not in Israel. We're not recipients of this promise that God had made to the Israelites in the Old Testament. But yet, this promise is repeated in the New Testament which means that it has some aspect of application for us. And what that means then is that there will be a blessing that comes from being obedient to our parents. There is a reward. We have to understand that. A thriving family means having God at the center. And when God is at the center, then these other things will hopefully fall into place. Now maybe you're here today and you say, I've blown it with my kids. My children are grown. I didn't do this. And I look back and, I, and I've, I've failed and it's too late. Well, then here's what you do. You admit your sin, um, sin to them, confess it and ask for their forgiveness, and then let God become your advocate, loving them now. And if you, it doesn't mean that you parent the same way. Again, you have different stages, but you are to show the love of Christ to them. And if you're in the midst of parenting, please keep on and don't cast God's word aside. Remember, there is no perfect parent and, give your, and, and allow God to give you His grace. And if you'll enter into it, put the foundation in place through the, the teaching and, and admonition in His Word so that God may help you become a thriving family focused on Him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, this is a difficult truth. Lord, it seems so far away and difficult to even comprehend. But Lord, you have given parents a divine responsibility to teach their children, to love them, to provide for them, to protect them. Lord, and yet you've commanded also the children to obey their parents. Lord, help us as your people to live out the truths within your word, no matter how difficult they might be. And Lord, whether we are are parenting the first time around, or maybe we're grandparents and we're finding ourselves raising our children's kids, Lord, give us grace and strength. Lord, if we find ourselves as parents to children who may not even be our own, help us to, to, again, put these principles into place that your name might receive great glory. Because, Lord, you've entrusted us to teach the truths of who you are to our children and to model it before them so that they might truly see and understand who you are. And they might receive you as Lord and Savior of their life, understanding and seeing uh, Jesus as the reason and purpose of their lives. So, Lord, glorify your name in our lives. Draw us near to yourselves, yourself and uh, make your name known in our, in our church so that people might know who you are and increase and strengthen the families that are here. Lord, bring reconciliation. Bring healing where there's been brokenness, betrayal, and sin. And, Lord, bring your name great glory through the family because we know that the enemy is attacking it. Help us not to survive, but thrive for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.